If you'll please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, we're in chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 20. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 955. And one of the benefits that we have of exegetical preaching, like we do here, going verse by verse through a book of the Bible, is it forces the preacher to address all of Scripture. You know, we can't just skip around to our favorite passages, to the easy passages. It forces us to deal with the passage that we would probably rather avoid. And today's passage, to tell the truth, would probably be one that I would choose to avoid if it were up to me. I'd rather be preaching through something like Philippians 4, you know, something happy, you know, something joyful, encouraging, inspiring. Well, I don't know if today's passage is going to be inspiring. I think it's more likely to make us feel awkward or uncomfortable and, and maybe angry, maybe guilty, maybe confused, and most likely all of the above. But not only does this passage deal with an uncomfortable subject, human sexuality, sexual immorality, prostitution. It's also a difficult-to-understand passage. So it's got two things against it. It's hard to understand what Paul is even saying in this passage. But we believe all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is profitable. It's useful for, for training and rebuke so that us as the people of God will be thoroughly equipped for every good work, for what God has called us to do. And I found it's often these difficult passages, these ones that we really need to, 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 to dig deep that's when we get the, these richest nuggets that, that, that help us in our spiritual growth. So I do pray that this will be the case for all of us today. So 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. Brothers and sisters, you're now the word of the Lord. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both and the other. We'll destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray for your spirit. I need your spirit on me, Lord, to speak through me. Lord, these are difficult words, but this is your word, this is truth. And Father, I pray that you will open our hearts to hear from you. And Father, we know that your word is both a, a double-edged sword. It cuts and it heals. And Father, above all, we pray that you will be glorified today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a misunderstanding, both in the church and, and outside the church. And the misunderstanding is that Christianity is all about rules. Don't drink. Don't curse. Don't play cards. Don't, don't go to movies. Don't go on dates. Don't hang out with, with the wrong type of people. And there's an expectation that a, a Christian will look a certain way, will dress a certain way, will act a certain way. And if a person doesn't meet this expectation we sometimes think they must not be a true Christian. Well, friends, this is not Christianity. This is legalism. This is an attempt by our actions, by our behaviors, by our attitudes to earn God's favor, 
to merit his reward, to, to meet God's standards so that we can say we've done something. We, had, we played a part in our salvation. And this is our natural default. This is our natural default religion. It's called works righteousness. We are saved by our good works. And this is really the, is the same as all world religions. If you think about it, at, at, the, at the heart, all religions say the same thing. They say that our final destiny, however they define that, is based on something that we do, something that we think, some enlightenment that we have. But biblical Christianity is different. It's different. Christianity is not based on merit. Christianity is based on grace. It's not something we do. It's something that God has already done. In all other religions, man attempts to reach up to God, to find God by something that he does. In Christianity, God comes down. God reaches down to save man. Now, the bad news is, the bad news is that even our best efforts are woefully inadequate. Woefully inadequate to meet God's standard. And every single one of us, every single one of us has fallen and fallen short of the glory of God. And even our best works are filthy in God's sight. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, eternal death. So you want to earn something? That's what you earn. Your wages that you get is death, eternal death. This is the bad news. But there's also good news. And the good news is the gospel. The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to become a propitiation for our sins. You say, what? What is propitiation? This means that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. Propitiation is absorbing the wrath of God. The wrath of God that he had against our sins was absorbed by Jesus. Jesus took the penalties that our sins deserved. And as a return, Jesus gives us the merit. He gives us his obedience, his perfect obedience, which is required to please God. And then this double exchange takes place. Jesus gets our sin, which is then punished on the cross, and we get Jesus' perfect righteousness, and we get rewarded, the reward that Jesus' obedience deserved, which is eternal life. And this is an exchange to those, and only to those, who by faith alone receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone and become a new creation in Christ and are born again. This is the wonderful good news of the gospel. And when we experience this new birth, everything changes. Everything changes. See, we are set free from the rules of legalism. We no longer have to, to live in fear that we're going we're to mess up. We're free from this, this list of rules uh, that we think that, we, that what it means to be a Christian. And St. Augustine put it greatly. He said, when you become a Christian, there's only one rule. is to love God and do what you want. Do what you want. See, if we're a new creation in Christ, what we want deeply, our deepest desire, is to please God, is to glorify God. And this freedom from legalism, from following a list of rules, this is what we call Christian liberty. And this is amazing discovery, especially if any have come from a legalistic background. It's an amazing discovery that we have this freedom. And this may shock you. It may shock you. It's not sinful to drink alcohol. Not necessarily sinful to drink alcohol. It could be. It's not sinful to smoke. It's not sinful to go to R-rated movies or to play cards or, or to eat whatever food you want or even to use certain language or even to vote a certain way. It's not sinful. It could be, depending on the situation, but not necessarily sinful. And see, Christian freedom is broad. It's a broad freedom. And Christian freedom makes us uncomfortable. It makes us uncomfortable because we can't just apply these, these rules. We want rules. Obedience, we want obedience to look easy. If you do this, you're okay. But obedience is more complicated. 
It will look different for different people in different situations. And we need to understand that. We need to say that what is someone might do, I'm not talking about relativism. I'm talking about in areas of Christian freedom, what might be sinful for me may not be sinful for another person. And we have to understand this. We're going to talk more about this when we get into chapter 8, when we look at food sacrificed to idols. But what the Corinthians were doing here, and what Paul addresses in this passage, is that the, 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 the Corinthians had no problem with Christian liberty. They liked Christian liberty. And what they were doing is they were applying this general Christian liberty that they have in areas of food and so forth. And they were saying, well, I have this in my area of my sexuality. They were treating their sexual relationships and practices as a, as a matter of preference, as, as all things are okay. Do what you want with whomever you want. All things are okay because I have Christian liberty. That's what they were thinking. And Paul said, absolutely not. He says, no way. He says, sex is different. Sexual sin is different. And that's what he addresses in this passage. So let's start off looking at the, the first verse, verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me. Now notice if you look at our ESV, the Pew Bibles, uh, and most modern translations, they have all things as lawful in quotes. And the reason it's in quotes is, is most scholars believe, this is not in quotes in the, in the original Greek manuscripts, but most scholars believe that Paul is quoting a saying that was common among the Corinthian church. And we see quotes also in verse 13 when he talks about the food is for the body and the body for food, or um, the body, the stomach, the food is for the stomach, and you know what I mean, the stomach is for food. It's a, it's a quote, I don't, I don't actually have that one memorized myself, but uh, it's the same thing in verse 13. And this was, this was a common saying in the church. And Paul acknowledges the truth of this saying, but he adds a qualification in the rest of, of verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So Paul is saying that our Christian freedom makes all things on which Scripture is silent. That is, they're not commanding you. You're not free from things. If God commands you something, you have to do it. But things on which God is silent, and there are many things that God is silent, it makes these things lawful for us. But that is, doing or not doing them is not a matter of sin. But rather, it is a matter of wisdom. Wisdom. So just because something is lawful, it doesn't mean that it's helpful, though. It doesn't mean that it's wise. For example, there's no law in the scripture that says taking a bunch of leaves, squishing them up, stuffing them in your mouth, and setting them on fire is sinful. It's not. In other words, called smoking. It's not sinful to smoke. But if you look at <clears throat> all the health evidence there is <clears throat> about smoking, it's probably not wise to do. Again, it's not something the church discipline says, oh, you lit a cigarette, you're going you're gonna to smoke. It's not, it's not sinful if that's what you want to do, but it's not. again, it's not a wise thing. The same thing with alcohol. <clears throat> like I said, it's not sinful. Alcohol in moderation. Drunkenness is, is definitely a sin, but alcohol in moderation. But for some people, that's maybe not a good idea. Maybe you could drink in moderation, but you still can get addicted, even if you don't get intoxicated. Again, that is not wise. Paul says, I will not be, have something that will dominate me, that, that, will, that I will become addicted to. So verse 13, Paul quotes this other saying, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And this also appears to be in alignment with Paul's understanding of Christian freedom. But what the Corinthians did is they used this statement to apply not just to food, but also to sex. <clears throat> so they were equating the Christian freedom that they had with respect to food to mean that they had the same freedom with respect to sexual activity. And here Paul is, is quick to shut them down. Paul makes it clear that sexual activity and sexual sin, they are in a completely different category than food. 
there is a, a qualitative difference with sexual activity. And the problem the Corinthians had, and it's really the same problem that we have, our modern culture has, is we have a completely wrong understanding of sex, a wrong understanding of its purpose and its divine significance. This slogan found in, in verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. See, the Corinthians apply this to sex and basically see that our sexual impulses are no different than any other physical appetite. And appetites are meant to be satisfied. That's why you have a stomach, so that you can eat, that you can, that you can satisfy that craving. So if you have an itch, you scratch it. So what they were thinking, if I have a sexual craving, I have to gratify it. And they're thinking it's just physical. It's, it's nothing spiritual. There's nothing affecting my relationship with Christ. And this is, this is why the Corinthians, if you remember back in, in chapter 5, they had no problem tolerating this, this sexual sin, that they had this, indult, this uh, incestuous relationship where the, where the man had a sexual relationship with his father's wife. They didn't think anything was wrong with that. And if you remember, verse 5 says that this type of sexual immorality was not even tolerated among the pagans. See, they, they were doing something even worse than the pagans would accept. And what was the attitude that they had? Well, 5.2 says, instead of mourning such wickedness, they were actually arrogant. Now, why would they be arrogant that they tolerate such immorality that, that even the pagans reject? Well, it's because what they did is they looked down on the pagans. See, they saw the pagans actually as the legalists. They said, oh, you've got these outdated taboo, taboos. You, know, we're, we're, you, you don't understand. We have Christian freedom. They don't understand that, that you're saved by Christ, not by rules. So for the Christian, all things are lawful for me. All food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food, so I can do whatever I want sexually because it doesn't really matter. It's Christian freedom. And even this in itself is a misunderstanding. Uh, even if it didn't have to do with sex, Christian freedom. See, Christian liberty gives us freedom to glorify God, gives us freedom from sin, gives us freedom to enjoy the gifts that he's given. He gives us freedom from our selfish and, uh, desires. It's, it's, it's not a freedom to throw off all restraint and then indulge all these narcissistic cravings that we may have. But when it comes to sex, it's even deeper than this. See, the Corinthians, and again, our modern, modern culture, we have a woefully inadequate understanding of the spiritual significance of sexuality. And it's a completely different category than these other physical appetites. Again, look at verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And Paul says, and God will destroy both one and the other. See, Paul is saying, yeah, you're right about food, about cravings of food. That's temporary. There's no eternal significance about what you eat or, or don't eat. But, the, but both will be destroyed. Both your stomach and, 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 and the food will be destroyed when you die. But then Paul draws this line. He turns the conversation away from food to sex. And here the attitude is completely different. Paul goes on in verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And here is the problem that the Corinthians have, and here's a problem again that, that we have. They completely separated their physical conduct, what they ate, what they drank, what they did sexually, from their spiritual life. They did not see their, their physical conduct in these areas, that that had any effect, any, any bearing on their relationship with Christ. And truthfully, even what we eat and drink affects our relationship with God. Later on, we'll see in, in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. See, it doesn't matter what you eat or what, whether you eat or if you eat or don't eat or whatever it is. It's your attitude. Are you doing it for the glory of God? It's your heart. That's what matters. 
And really, this attitude applies not just to food. This applies to everything in life. Is everything that we're doing, this is the litmus test of everything, anything you want to do. You ask yourself, if what I want to do now, does this glorify God? If it glorifies God, then you can do it. Just like St. Augustine. Love God and do what you want. Does it glorify God? But our sexuality goes even beyond this general principle of doing all for the glory of God. There is far less latitude for our expression of our sexuality than we have in other activities. And here again, this, this, you may not like what I'm hearing, but I'm just going to say what the Bible says. The Bible is clear. The Bible says the only valid expression of our sexuality is within the confines of a lifelong covenant marriage between one man and one woman. Any sexual, any sexual activity outside of this context is sinful. That's what the Bible says. It's sinful, period. And this applies both to believers and unbelievers. See, marriage, is, when Nathan read this about marriage, it was instituted by God before the fall. It is applied to all humanity. It's not just for the church, all humanity. God said in Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. See, God has only given us, only given us two options with, when it comes to sex. Either within a covenant marriage, between one man and one woman, or celibacy. Those are the only choices. And it doesn't matter what the culture says, it doesn't matter what Hollywood says, it doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says, the state, the voters, the culture. It's what God said. God defined marriage. We don't define it. And the reason that God does this, the reason why sex is is so limited, so exclusive, is because sex has a significance beyond the individual. It has an eternal significance. Take a look at verse 14. It says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And what this is talking about is the final resurrection of the body in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, it's not talking about sex in heaven. Actually, Jesus has said that there's no marriage in the resurrection. But rather what this is talking about, and here's the, the really scary thing about it, is there's an eternal significance about sexual activity that we have now in this life. There's an eternal significance to it. See, unlike the angels, which are only spiritual beings, as human beings, we are both spiritual and physical beings. We have to understand, we're not just, that that was a mistake the Corinthians make, it's a mistake a lot of us make, that we're just spiritual. Our our true self is really our spirit. Our body is nothing. It's just, it's just, it's going to rot in the ground. That's not what the Christian believes. We believe that our body is going to be raised and is going to be united with our soul for all eternity. So all eternity, we are going to be Body and soul. That is the core of our being, both physical and spiritual. The core of our being is both physical and spiritual. So as believers, when we are, when we are regenerated by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are united to Christ. And this union affects our entire being. It's not just a spiritual union. It affects both our body and our spirit. It is an eter- and it's an eternal bond with our entire core of our being. And we see this in the first part of verse 15. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? See, Paul's not saying just your spirits, not just your souls. Our entire body, our entire being, body and soul is united to Christ. And Paul goes on to say in verse 15, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. See, this verse is meant to shock. See, the Corinthians, and again, and and us, we, we have this disconnect. We think that our sexual life and our spiritual life are compartmentalized. They're completely walled off. And they thought that they could gratify even the, the most debased impulses and that these were the, the, those that even the pagans 
would not do. And then that they can come and worship Christ and it would have no effect on them. And Paul is graphically showing that this is not the case. And Paul is telling them that when they are with prostitutes, they say Christ is right there with you. When you're, when you're with Christ, you are subjecting Christ to this union, your union with Christ to this vile practices. And this was meant to get their attention. Now you may say, well, 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 Christ is with us in everything we do, right? So why is sexual sin different? Why, why is Christ not dishonored when, when I eat too many Krispy Kreme donuts or, or, or tell cheesy dad jokes? Am I subjecting you know, Christ to that? Why is sex different? Well, we see the answer in the next verse, in verse 16. He says, or do you not know that he who is joined with a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. And here's where we see the significance here, the, significant, the eternal significance of human sexuality. And, why, and this is why God limits sex to the confines of a biblical marriage. It's not that, that God is a, a killjoy and, and doesn't want us to have fun. God does this to protect us. See, sex is extremely powerful. And using it in the wrong context will have devastating consequences. And when this verse says that the two will become one flesh or, or one body, this is not simply talking about a physical union. It goes beyond that. It, it, the body here represents not just the physical, but our entire being, body and soul. Right? As Christians, we are united to Christ, body and soul. It's not just the spirit. So what this is saying is a sexual union, unit is a, is, is a union of body and soul. It is the most intimate human act possible. And it's a completely giving of yourself, not just your body, but your entire being to another person. And this brings us to a point of, of alternate, ultimate vulnerability. We are completely opened up. We are giving another person access to the core of our being. And if this is not done within the safety of a lifelong exclusive covenant marriage, it can and it does cause great damage, physically, emotionally, spiritually. So in our Old Testament reading that Nathan read from Genesis 2, we are given the account of the first marriage. Again, this is pre-fall. In Genesis 2.18, God says, I will make a helper fit for him. And some of I need to explain exactly what this is talking about. This is denoting God as a master craftsman. And he is fashioning the woman perfectly to perfectly fit the man. And the Hebrew word translated here, helper, some people think that this is, this is a subordinate or, some, or, or something limited. This word is actually used most often of God himself, helper. And what it actually means is one who supplies what is lacking. So what God is doing, he's created the husband and the wife to perfectly complement one another. They fit together perfectly. They fit together perfectly in every way, physically, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually. And they were fastened that, fashioned that way by God. See, the woman was given, again, by God as a gift, a gift to her husband. And the husband was given by God as a gift to his wife. So if you're married, this, your spouse is God's gift to you. Just think about that. If you are married, your spouse is God's gift. We, we joke about that. You know, he thinks he's God's gift to the world. Well, he's not God's gift to the world. But if he is married, he is at least God's gift to his wife. And this perfect compatibility of the husband and the wife, again, crafted by God, and then sealed together in the covenant of marriage, this is the only context where human sexuality can be safely exercised. Genesis chapter 2 ends with these words, the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. And this is not only speaking about 
physical nakedness, but rather this complete this describes the complete vulnerability, the, the complete intimacy, both emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, and physically, that is experienced in a marriage. And then verse 17 reiterates that Christians are united to Christ in the core of our beings. And again, that's why we want to have only Christian marriage. We want to have Christians marrying Christians. Because we don't want to bring unbelievers. We don't want to bring prostitutes into the relationship. And this needs to be sealed. It needs to be, it needs to be in a covenant marriage. Verse 18 really gets to the heart, though, of this passage. And it gets to the heart of, of the uniqueness of sexual sin. And of why sexual sin is so destructive. It's not only destructive to the individual, it is destructive to families, it's destructive to churches, and it's really destructive to our entire society, which we are seeing now. And sexual sin is the point of attack that Satan comes after us, and he has successfully come after us. It wrecked havoc on our fallen race. So Paul's command in verse 18 is to flee sexual morality. That's the first thing we want to see. We don't want to mess around with it. We want to get away from it. We don't want to think that it's harmless. We don't want to think that it's just flirting. It's not going to go anywhere. Oh, it's just entertainment. Oh, it's just, it's just a picture. It's no big deal. My friends, it is a big deal. Scripture says it's a big deal. Get away from it. Think of Joseph. Remember Joseph when Potiphar's wife wanted him to, to, to sleep with her? He ran away. He even, he even you know, went and had to go to jail for it. But he knew that sexual sin, temptation, was so dangerous. It was better to run away. It was better to be in prison than to, to compromise, because it was a sin against God. Think of King David. We, we read and we sang Psalm 51, which was written by King David, after he had been con, uh, confronted by the prophet Nathan for committing adultery. And, and just, just think of the consequences. It devastated. You know, it destroyed his family. He, he lost four of his sons. His daughter was raped. And, and, and he nearly lost his kingdom. We are to flee sexual immorality. And then Paul gives us the reason for this urgent plea. And here we see, uh, he, he shows us why sexual sin is so dangerous. Look at the rest of, of, of verse 18. He says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against the body. And if you're scratching your head on this, this is a difficult passage. This verse is difficult to understand. Its meaning is disputed. People scratch their heads and say, what is Paul talking about? Lots of sins are committed against the body, right? Gluttony, you're making your body fat. Drunkenness, you're making your body drunk. Suicide, right? You're killing your body. That has to be against the body. But what does this mean? Well, when this verse talks about sins against the body or outside the body or sinning against the body, what I believe is happening is Paul is using the word body, not to refer to the physical body, but rather to refer to this, this body, soul, core of our being that we were talking about. That's what he's talking about. It's our body, it's the core of our being that is being sinned against. The same way he uses the word in, in, in verse 16, of being joined with a prostitute in sexual union. The same way he uses the core of our being is that we're united to Christ, body and soul. The same way in our eternal state that we will be body and soul, that's how we will exist. So what this verse is saying what the uniqueness of sexual sin is that every other sin outside the body, it says that there's a separation of every other sin, that it doesn't affect the core of our being. But sexual sin, because it is completely open, completely vulnerable, the sexual sin hits the heart of our being. It hits the heart of what it means to be a human made in the image of God. And I think this is the reason why Satan has invested so much energy in tempting our race to sexual sin. 
See, because sexual sin defiles the very core of what it means to be a human being made in the image of God. You see, the one flesh relationship that God has ordained for marriage, this is uniquely human. Angels, being purely spiritual beings, they don't have sex. Animals are purely physical beings. They have a physical union, but it's not eternal. Only humans can experience the one flesh body and soul intimacy in human sexuality. And in, in, in this one flesh relationship, we as fallen and finite people, we can here most clearly reflect the image of God. In the fact is, when it is God's will, this is the act that has the power to actually create a new human being, a new image bearer, a new life, a life that will live for eternity. Angels can't do this. Angels don't procreate. Animals, they, they physically can uh, reproduce, but they don't have eternal. They don't, they're not eternal. They don't create eternal image bearers of the triune God. So this is why Satan hates human sexuality. It is a gift not given even to the most mighty angels. And this is why corruption of our sexuality through sexual immorality or homosexuality or, or genital mutilation, which is euphemistically called gender affirmation surgery, this is why this is Satan's strategy. It's been Satan's strategy for millennia. It's not new. It really isn't. This is why infanticide, which has been around forever, through Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh would get rid of the, 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 the baby, throw him in the Nile. Moloch sacrifices your babies on the altar. And now in the abortion mills, sacrificing millions of babies that we are doing now. This is Satan's strategy. He hates humanity. He hates sex. He hates babies. Ultimately, he hates God, and he wants to rid this planet of all the image bearers of God. And being a sin that is committed against the core of our being, <clears throat> where, we are, where we are most vulnerable, where we are most defenseless, sexual sin has a uniquely soul-destroying power that we do not see in other areas. And I don't mean its ability to separate us from God, because all sins separate us from God. And I don't mean that it's unforgivable, because all sins are forgivable in Christ. What I'm talking about is the consequence, the destruction, the destructiveness of this sin. Sexual sin is particularly destructive in this world. And one of the most disturbing books that I've ever read is a book called Rid My Disgrace. And it was one that I had to read for my pastoral counseling class in seminary. And it's about the effects of sexual abuse. And it's hard. There are lifelong psychological effects of this kind of abuse. And many, many here may have experienced or know people who have experienced this. It affects relations. Even, even your basic functions of life are affected. And, and the really sad thing is if you, you look at a lot of these perpetrators, they themselves were victims, which means that this sexual abuse, like a virus, perpetuates itself where victims become abusers. And it's horrible. See, a gift that God has given us when, when used in the proper context has the ability for us to experience the greatest joy, the greatest pleasure, the greatest intimacy that we could have with another person in this life, when misused has the power to cause horrible pain and misery. And it's sad. It is sad that Satan has deceived us, how he has so twisted our thinking, even the thinking of Christians, that we regularly profane this most sacred gift. And there's not one of us, there is not one of us who is not touched by this, who has not been deceived. Each one of us has fallen short in this area, in thought, word, or deed, or most likely all three. And as I said, this is not going to be one of those inspiring sermons. This is a, a convicting sermon. This is a discouraging sermon because many of us have failed in this area. 
And I want to address those who have failed in this area, who have committed sexual sin. And it could be a sexual activity outside of marriage, pornography, homosexuality, adultery, or even, even worse. And you may be wondering, is this the end? Am I damaged goods? You may have had past sins. You may have current sins. You may even be at this moment in a, in a sexual relationship outside of marriage, an adulterous relationship, a same-sex sexual relationship. You may regularly use pornography. You may, you may say, is there hope for me? And the answer is a resounding yes. Yes, there is hope. And we see the hope in the last two verses of this passage. He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, or you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So if you're in Christ, if you are in Christ, your sins have been forgiven. Past, present, and future sins. You have been set free from the penalty of those sins. They are punished once and for all on the cross. God will never hold them against you. And even though your sins once, even though your sins once were, and some even now are, are like scarlet, in Christ they are made white as snow. No matter what your sexual past may be, in Christ you are pure. You have been set free from the penalty of sin and you have been cleansed from the shame of sin. And if that was not good enough, not only have you been set free from the penalty of sin and from the shame of sin, you have also been set free from the power of your sin. God has given you the ability, has given us the ability to overcome our sin, to have victory over our sin, even the insidious sexual sin. See, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. We do not fight alone. It is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who is fighting with us, enabling us to live to the purity that Christ has called us to. Rely on him. Trust in his power, that the power of the Holy Spirit that you already have within you. And lastly, lastly, we will overcome our past and current sins when we change our thinking. When we realize that God did not save us, God did not give us Christian freedom for us to indulge our sins, be enslaved by our sinful desires. But God has saved us so that we can serve him, that we can glorify him. And the truth is we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. The price was the infinitely valuable, the infinitely precious blood of Christ. And we have been bought not to serve ourselves, not to gratify our sinful desires, but to serve Christ, to serve him, to glorify him. So that is our call. Glorify God with your bodies. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that this is a difficult subject, one that that many of us struggle with. But Father, the truth is we have the Holy Spirit. The truth is that we we, we, we are not helpless. You have given us what we need. And I pray, Father, if there are any who are struggling in this particular area, Lord, that you will give them that hope that comes from your from your Holy Spirit. If there are any who hear my voice who do not know you, do not have that hope, Father, that they will come to you, they will call, they will receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone as he is offered in your gospel and come to everlasting life. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would please stand. And we will sing nothing but the blood.